I want to call your attention now to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we want to consider the subject, by God's grace this afternoon, of angels and the ministry of angels to God's people. We'll read as a text Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll pick up the reading in verse Eight, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish. But thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. May the Lord give his blessing to the reading of his word. <clears throat> the opening argument in the letter to the Hebrews concerning the deity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ is that he is better than the angels showing us something of the, the greatness of the angels, but Christ's surpassing supremacy. And that's the wording in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. The angels worship him. Jesus does not worship angels. Angels worship, worship Jesus. According to verse 6, let all the angels of God worship him. Verse 14 here seems to be a reference or perhaps is a reference to Psalm 104 verse 4. There are quite a few Old Testament references and quotations and allusions here in uh, this first chapter of Hebrews. But it says, Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? This is as close as we get in Scripture to an encompassing job description for the angels. That they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. There's no way that we can say all that the scripture says about angels in one message. And I have some acquaintances uh, who preached on the subject of angels for, I think, a whole year or something and, and looked in detail at every reference. But we want to make some general observations and then keep kind of narrowing the focus as we work through the message here. <clears throat> I confess my indebtedness to John Newton and Thomas Goodwin, and those are the two who come to mind. There may be others that I've forgotten. But concerning angels in general, they are a race of created beings superior to man. In Psalm 8, we read that man is made lower than the angels. They were probably created on day one in Genesis chapter one when God laid the foundations of the earth. And as Job 38 says, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
The angels are essentially spirit beings, though sometimes they take a visible form to appear unto man. And we see that in various passages throughout the scripture. There is clearly some rank and order to the angels. There are those who are called archangels. There is some division of labor among the angels. We have cherubim who apparently are the special guardians of God's throne uh, in some sense. The angels do not have the the attributes of God. They are not all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. They are finite creatures. They are limited creatures, limited by time and in ways that I don't think we can quite grasp, limited by space. One of their number... Lucifer led a rebellion against God. And if I understand the reference in the book of Revelation correctly, it seems that he drew a third of the angels with him in this rebellion to oppose God. And instead of coming to earth to minister to man, Satan or Lucifer came to enlist man in the rebellion so that it would not just be a rebellion of angels against God, but a rebellion of man also. And he succeeded in the temptation and in the enlistment of man. And we suffer the consequences of that to this day. Fallen angels are called devils in Scripture. Unfallen angels, the ones who remain faithful and obedient to God, are in at least one place called elect angels. And there's a fascinating scene in the book of Daniel where the the fallen angels and the elect angels are battling one with another. That's why I said earlier, they seem to be limited by space. Uh, The angel Gabriel was hindered from coming to Daniel because of his battle with fallen angels. There is spiritual warfare in that realm that we cannot see. And scripture just lifts the veil in a place or two, like Daniel chapter 10, to, to give us a glimpse into that unseen world. The elect angels worship God continually. In the scene of the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, there are the, the cherubim who worship God continually and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. One of the assignments of the angels, or at least some of the angels, is to minister to God's elect upon earth. And that's what our text, Hebrews 1.14, tells us. They are all ministering spirits. So perhaps even the cherubim who we think of as being near the throne are sent on missions of ministry to God's people on earth or those who have yet to be called unto salvation by God's saving grace. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? They minister to God's elect even before they are brought to faith in Christ. Though the angels are heaven-focused in their worship, they are earth-focused in their work. Again, there's a fascinating scene there when Jacob is uh, 
leaving home and going up into uh, uh, Haran, and he has the vision, the dream of angels traversing to and fro from heaven to earth and back to heaven again on a, uh, a staircase kind of a thing. Again, it's fascinating, it's intriguing, and, and there's just a lot that we don't understand about that. But that, that dream, no doubt, is to, it was an indication to Jacob that God had these ministering spirits working in Jacob's favor and to protect and help him. Part of what piqued my interest in this subject recently is what we saw in our confession of faith studies in chapter 3, verse 3, or chapter 3, paragraph 3. <clears throat> and I had not really given this any thought, but one of the resources I was reading brought this up. It says, By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. And the fact that angels are mentioned along with men here as being foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ raises the question, if there's no Redemption for fallen angels, as Hebrews 2 tells us. And if the elect angels do not need redemption because they have no sin, then why in this paragraph of the confession of faith are the elect angels mentioned as in some connection with Christ, some union with him uh, in eternal life? And when we looked at that just a few weeks ago, we offered this, these suggestions. They are, the angels are confirmed and preserved and upheld by Christ. If they had not been so, they would have gone along with the others who rebelled. They were then preserved and confirmed by Christ. Furthermore, he exercises mediatorial headship over them and will not take the time, I suppose, to, to look at these passages. Well, maybe, maybe we should. Just let me turn and read and, and refresh your memory. We have something like this in Ephesians 1.22. Perhaps the reference in Colossians 1.20 is even more uh, remarkable here having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. In Christ's mediatorial work, there are implications for all things, all things in heaven and in earth. There are certainly implications for those who die in their sins, because Christ as mediator will sit over them as judge. Christ as redeemer reconciles his, or God's elect to himself. And things in heaven would also include angels, though they are not in need of reconciliation. Christ's mediatorial headship includes them. He is head over them as he is mediator and part of his mediatorial lordship. The angels, furthermore, are part of God's family in some sense. They're called sons of God there in Job 38 that I quoted a few moments ago. They are fellow servants and brothers according to Revelation 19.10 and 22.9. In some sense, they are brethren to those 
of man who are redeemed. And perhaps here in Hebrews 1.9, the reference at the end to fellows is referring to the angels. In some sense, they are related to the Lord Jesus Christ under those terms. We know from uh, later here in the book of Hebrews, the angels are partakers in some sense, and I'm not sure that I can understand exactly altogether the sense, but in some sense they are partakers of new covenant blessings in Christ. In Hebrews 12:22, ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. And this is all in the context of the new covenant blessings for the people of God. So perhaps that is a more uh, complete answer to why why the confession mentions angels here as ordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Moving on, it would be... uh, Several messages to look in detail at the ministry of old, or the ministry in the Old Testament of angels to the people of God. We see them present and ministering in various ways. I won't even go into any detail here. Just mention the names of the of the heirs of salvation who had some. Involvement and to whom angels ministered in some respects in the Old Testament. There's Abraham and Lot, Moses. We read in the New Testament the law was given and mediated by angels. Balaam, well, he, he was not an heir of salvation, so maybe we should scratch him from the list. Certainly Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson, Gideon, David, Elijah and Elisha, Hezekiah, and Daniel. We have all these different snapshots of angels ministering to God's people. We come to the New Testament and we see angels ministering to our Lord, Jesus, in his life on this earth. Even before his birth, the angels announced his birth. And then at his birth, angels announced his birth to the shepherds. Mary and Joseph and Jesus were warned by an angel to go into Egypt and escape the persecution from Herod. When our Lord began his public ministry, at the very beginning when he is, uh, after his baptism, tempted by Satan, angels came and ministered unto him, it says, when the devil had left him. In Gethsemane, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him as he prayed earnestly. The Lord said to Peter in Matthew 26 that there were angels awaiting his call. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But our Lord did not make that call. Rather, he endured the suffering and the death of the cross. Thank the Lord. There were angels present and bearing witness at the resurrection and at the ascension of Christ back into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And looking forward, we see that at the second coming, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And there are several passages that speak of the angels 
involved in the end-time events, the second coming of Christ. Angels will reap the harvest at the end of the world. But the devil and his angels will be cast into everlasting fire. And Paul makes the statement to the Corinthians that the saints will judge the angels. And I've been trying to understand that, and when I get more insight, I'll pass it on. In the book of Acts, we find angels ministering in the early church. In chapter 5, they helped all the apostles escape from prison. In Acts chapter 8, an angel guided Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. In chapter 10, an angel guided Cornelius to Peter. In chapter 12, an angel helped Peter escape from death row. And in the same chapter, an angel smote Herod, who had put Peter on death row. It's quite a contrast there in that section of Scripture. Peter escapes death, and Herod, who thought he was safe and sound, is smitten and dies a horrible death. And then in Acts chapter 27, Paul receives word from an angel in the storm on the Mediterranean Sea that there will be deliverance for all on board the ship which certainly came to pass. So that's just a very brief mention and and survey of the ministry of angels sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, let's devote the remainder of our time here to angels ministering today. They are invisible And so there's much that we don't see or understand. But it stands to reason that if we believe that demonic activity can and does continue to this day, and I think uh, though the heart of man is is desperately wicked and capable of every sin imaginable and then some, there are some instances where stories you read in the news and so on, you think this this is this is beyond normal depravity. There is something demonic in this. You, know, you you learn a little bit about Adolf Hitler or somebody like that, and you think, yes, the heart of man is capable of all that without any demonic help. But you can't help but wonder, is there some demonic, was there some demonic activity in a man like that? If we believe in demonic activity, how can we deny angelic activity then in the present day. Perhaps angels are God's means of keeping his people from demonic oppression. I know addressing a subject like this in a way puts us in company with some who seem to be just superstitious and they see demons and angels everywhere all the time, and they are constantly casting out the demons and and this and that. And I would avoid that kind of unbiblical superstition. But at the same time, we ought to be faithful to what is revealed in the Scripture. And that's where I would defer here uh, on some points to John Newton. John Newton wrote... A letter, his letters are, are, are the best part of his writings. And someone asked him about angels, and so he wrote at some length about it. 
Let me give you some gleanings from Newton on this subject. He's addressing here whether we visibly can see angels today. He says, how far sensible ministration of angels is continued in these days is not easy to determine. Many persons have been imposed upon by Satan through such expectation, and it is not safe to look for extraordinary things. Yet, I do not know that we have warrant from Scripture to limit the Lord so far as to affirm that he doth not nor ever will upon any occasion permit his angels to be seen by men as in former times. The apostle pressing believers to exercise hospitality uses this argument that thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's, of course, Hebrews 13, which would hardly seem to be a pertinent motive if it were absolutely certain that angels would never offer themselves as visitants or visitors to the servants of God in future times as they had formerly done. So let me just interrupt the quotation here. Newton is being very cautious and he says, I don't see any clear reason biblically why we must say it is impossible for angels to make some appearance in the times in which we live. But he goes on to say, but waving speculation as to their visible appearance, it is sufficient to know that they are really, though invisibly, near us and mindful of us, end quote. Well, Newton is certainly wise to be cautious and uh, not to fall into goofy superstition, And uh, he's, I think, keeping in mind Colossians 2.18, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen. We do not worship angels. In fact, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, angels refused the worship that men offered them. And so though we do not worship angels and we certainly don't want to intrude into things which we've not seen, we should acknowledge what Scripture does say about them. We should not overlook them. Scripture is not silent on this subject. They do, in fact, minister to those who will be saved. They are God's instruments perhaps more than we know. Perhaps when we arrive in heaven, we will be allowed to know more, and we will discover that we have been indebted to their instrumentality more than we realize, that they have ministered to us through our earthly sojourn more than we ever knew at the time. Now, let me read you a fascinating story from the life of a writer that uh, some of you will recognize. His name is Samuel Rutherford. He was a Scottish Presbyterian minister who uh, was on the Westminster Assembly and uh, his his writings continue to this day. We have one hymn in our hymnal based upon his his many writings. Spurgeon loved the letters of Samuel Rutherford and recommended them higher than anything else. Rutherford's biographer, Faith Cook writes this, little information has survived concerning Samuel Rutherford's early years, but there is one anecdote 
that he himself used to tell. As a child of perhaps five or six years of age, he fell into the village well. His playmates, of course, rushed to the nearest house with the alarming news that Sammy had fallen into the well. Moments later, however, when his would-be rescuers came hurrying to the spot, they were astonished to find a bedraggled little figure sitting on a mound of grass not far from the well, soaked to the skin but safe. They turned to the lad for an explanation. A bonny white man came and drew me out of the well, was the simple reply. This was an experience that Samuel Rutherford never forgot. The precise identity of the bonny white man or the beautiful white man may be unknown. But undeniably, the God of heaven, seeing the child in imminent danger, sent from above, took him and drew him out of many waters. End quote. God doesn't do that kind of thing every time, does he? But sometimes he may be pleased for his purposes and his unsearchable uh, plans to do such extraordinary things as this. <clears throat> Perhaps an incident like that offers some insight to these words of our Lord in Matthew chapter 18, where he said, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Commenting on that verse, John Newton writes this, quote, The ministry of angels preserves us from innumerable dangers and alarms which await us in our daily path. This is expressly taught in Psalm 91. And he's thinking of this verse, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Newton goes on to say, When we receive little or no harm, from a fall, or when a sudden motion of our minds leads us to avoid a danger which we were not aware of, perhaps the angels of God have been the means of our preservation. Nay, it may be owing to their good offices that we ever perform a journey in safety or are preserved from the evils we are liable to when sleeping upon our beds and incapable of taking any care ourselves. Finally, they are appointed to attend the saints in their last hours, and in a manner beyond our present apprehension to keep off the powers of darkness and bear the children of God safely home to their father's house. Luke 16, 22. Lazarus was carried by the angels. His spirit was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, there's a whole other aspect of the ministry of angels to the church as a whole. When we assemble, we know that they observe our actions both in and out of church or that they are able to observe. Paul says this to the Corinthians, I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last as it were appointed to death for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Paul gives us to understand here that angels observe 
in, in a general way. Writing again to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, he says this, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things. Paul calls God as a witness to what he is saying to Timothy, and he calls even the angels as a witness or as witnesses to what he is saying to Timothy. Now, I will ask you to turn to a few of these passages with me. The angels are undoubtedly present when God's churches assemble. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see, again, it's a passing reference, and we would like to have more information uh, from our perspective. In 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle is arguing here about the headship of Christ over the church, the headship of the man over the wife, or the husband over the wife. And he mentions the matter of covering for the head, that a man should not have his head covered in worship, a woman should. But he gives us this in 1 Corinthians 11:10, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels, that is, a symbol, an emblem of power or authority over her and upon her. And he says, because of the angels. He doesn't explain exactly what he means there. But we conclude that as angels cover their faces before God, Isaiah 6 so women should cover their head. And of course there's discussion and books have been written and articles and so on about uh, what is cultural and, and what is uh, of permanent standing. I think there's a good argument that long hair on a woman is the cultural equivalent of a veil in that day, but that's another message. The, the more relevant question to our study today is, are angels with us now? In view of a passage like this, we have to say yes. If God himself is here with us, as he promised to be by his Holy Spirit, where two or three are gathered together in his name, then it should not surprise us that some of his angels are here also. Could this be one way in which we entertain angels unawares? Well, that's a question for discussion. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, we see, that the angels are learning something of God by what they observe in us. Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church or through the church, by means of the church, the manifold wisdom of God. God is teaching his multifaceted wisdom. He is showing something of his glory to the angels through the New Testament church. It's a fascinating thing to consider. God's dealings with us teach the angels something about God himself. And then Peter tells us that the angels desire to look into the glories of Christ. This is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. <clears throat> he says the Old Testament prophets uh, inquired and searched diligently. They're poring over each other's prophecies and um, 
you know, Jeremiah is, is uh, studying Daniel and so on. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels are not cre- or were not created with perfect knowledge. They have a capacity to grow and learn about God. And they are especially interested, according to this text, in the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming to this earth, his ministry among men, his redemptive activity. The angels desire to look into these things, Peter tells us. And the looking into these things indicates to us that they have to do some digging. Perhaps some things God reveals to them immediately, but at least in some things, he uses means and he reveals himself to them immediately through their investigation and their study. And so, putting this together, we, we arrive at this uh, perspective that angels are with us when we're worshiping God. They are desiring to learn about God. God is teaching them through us And when we look into the Holy Scriptures in our gathering, some of these invisible guests join in, eager to hear, eager to learn. Furthermore, they will worship with us in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11 I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. There's voices from man, voices from elect angels. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain, and so on. Likewise, in chapter 7, we again see a similar scene. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell down before the throne on their faces and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. We will worship with angels in the glory of heaven. And even here on earth, when we worship God, angels are present and in some ways participating. We know from what our Lord said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, that angels rejoice when a sinner is saved. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. When a sinner repents, angels know, or some angels know, and rejoice about it. Imagine with some sanctified imagination the the anticipation and the excitement among the angels when they are in a place where the gospel is being preached 
and they eagerly await to see who is going to be saved. Whom God is going to give the gift of repentance. Oh, may God give the angels something to rejoice about in our midst. Very quickly, let me just make some applications here. Let us be mindful of these messengers that God uses. We do not worship the messengers. We worship the one who sent them. We do not worship the means. We worship the source and the cause. But we should be mindful of them as much as Scripture bids us to be. And we should especially be thankful that God chose to redeem fallen man rather than fallen angels. And that again is is laid out in some detail there in Hebrews chapter 2. If God had been pleased to redeem angels rather than men, then we would have no hope today instead of the devil's. We should let the the presence of the angels motivate us to zeal and devotion in our personal lives as well as in our church life. I know this is not the highest motive. The highest motive is that God is present and, and Christ is present and the Holy Spirit is present. But there are enough indications here in these scriptures we have seen to get at least some secondary motivation from this. Angels are watching. And so the question that we can ask is, what testimony can they give concerning us, concerning our life, our devotion to God, our prayers, our reading of God's word. Do you suppose the angels have conversations among themselves like this? Why aren't those Christians paying more attention to their Bibles? What's wrong with them? Do you suppose the angels are shocked at how little we think about God? And how lightly we take things that they are amazed at. And how easily we give in to temptation. And how slow we are to obey the Lord. And how easily we overlook our sins of omission. How little we look forward to coming to church. And how casually we approach public worship. You you wonder if the angels say, those poor people. Isn't it striking that we never read in Scripture of angels desiring to sit in uh, on the meeting of the Sanhedrin or the meeting of of, uh, Caesar and his court? and the Roman Senate, or the World Economic Forum, or or the United States Congress. But what they desire to sit in on is the public worship of Jesus Christ on earth. And they want to hear the preaching of the gospel. And again, I, I don't want to speculate, but I think some Sanctified imagination is is good. Perhaps the angels have a conversation among themselves like this. There's a worshiping church. There's a church where the gospel is going to be preached. Let's go there. Let's see what God is going to do there. Or perhaps they have a conversation like this. You know, we've been going to this, this one over here. And all they're interested in is 
entertaining themselves, calling attention to man, putting on a rock and roll concert. We're wasting our time going there. The gospel's not being preached. No sinner is going to repent there today. They're just carnally entertaining themselves. And certainly a higher motivation for us should be not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Not to grieve Him away. But Scripture does afford us this secondary motivation concerning the angels also. Perhaps I should give this warning. We are not to look to angels for instruction, but look to the Word of God. Something Newton said in, in, one, in part of his letter there reinforces that. Remember that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, and so that if an angel from heaven comes and preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. We have the written testimony of God. A final application is this. Lost friend, if you die in your sins, angels will assist in your punishment forever. We read in Revelation 14 that those who are lost will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. And in the presence of the Lamb, in some way, Christ will be present and his angels will be present, not in any comforting sense, but in a tormenting sense. The punishment of hell will be to suffer in the very presence, in the very view of the holy angels and the Lamb of God. And so, let this be an admonition if you're lost. I'll give it to you in the words of John Newton one last time. Be aware that the angels burn with a holy zeal to avenge God's cause and only wait his command to smite you as one of them smote Herod for not giving glory to God. He's referring to Acts 12.23, of course. Well, let us give glory to God. Let us learn from Herod to avoid that sad end. And instead of stealing glory that belongs to God and taking it to ourselves, let us give glory to God and give it to Him now and give it to Him always. Are they not all ministering spirits sent to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation?